Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. We're going to begin with this in just a few hours. Opening statements will begin in the highly anticipated trial of Derek Chauvin. He is a fired Minneapolis police officer accused of murdering George Floyd 10 months ago by kneeling on his neck for over nine minutes, they say now. According with to this the- case being broadcast wall to wall. We want to turn now to the Derek Chauvin trial. Week two getting underway today after five- Gavel to gavel. Jurors heard from several key witnesses in the first week of testimony. Much like the Rodney King trial. The fuse in the Rodney King case was lit in Southern California, but it stretched today all across America. Much like the OJ trial. This was the most dramatic moment of the trial to date and maybe the um, the turning point for, for the defense. It, it, Other trials where race played a very big element. It just seems like we're at another point where the verdict can set off America in ways that we're, we're not expecting. A lot of people are looking at this case as if America is on trial and we're going to see in a couple of weeks which way the jury goes. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today... I'm Bracton Booker. I'm a national correspondent here at Politico. And I'm the author of The Recast. It's a twice-a-week newsletter that focuses on race, policy, and the dynamics of power. Bracton Booker on the murder trial of Derek Chauvin and three key moments that illustrate how race is front and center in the courtroom. In your reporting, Bracton, you focused on a few key moments in the trial that centered on race, either explicitly or subtly. And I want to walk through some of them with you. The first being the opening statement of Derek Chauvin's defense attorney. Can you tell me what you heard from him and why you think it's important? Let me let me take a step back and say race was always going to be part of this case. Mm. You know, with a white officer and, and a black victim who ended up dying in police custody, race was always going to be a part of it. It was the way that race was being used in the opening statement by Derek Chauvin's defense attorney, uh, Eric Nelson. You will see that three Minneapolis police officers could not overcome the strength of Mr. Floyd. The fact that he was going and playing on some of these racial tropes that we've heard kind of throughout American history that kind of date back to, you know, the lynching era of Jim Crow, all throughout policing of the 21st century. He paid a close attention to the size difference between Chauvin and Floyd. Mr. Chauvin stands five foot nine, 140 pounds. Mr. Floyd is six three, weighs 223 pounds. It harkened back to the notion that this was a big, strong, physically imposing specimen of a human being who was superhuman and that, you know, the white officer had no choice but to get help to get this kind of brute onto the onto the ground. And it was being used to justify his actions on why he ultimately ended up kneeling on his neck for for several minutes, more than nine minutes. At this location, questions emerge about the reasonableness of the use of force. And this will ultimately become one of the decisions that you have to make. In addition to the opening statement from Chauvin's defense, you also looked in your reporting at testimony from a witness named Christopher Martin. Who is Christopher Martin? And why did his testimony stand out to you? 
So Christopher Martin is the teenage cashier who interacted with George Floyd in Cup Foods before police arrived on the scene. He was working in the cashier and received the alleged counterfeit $20 bill from George Floyd. Now, that's important because the whole reason the police arrived on the scene in the first place was because George Floyd allegedly tried to pay for a pack of cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. Now, Christopher Martin testifies later that after the police arrived and the altercation between George Floyd and officers is taking place, he comes outside to kind of look to see what the commotion is about, and he calls his mother first. I pulled my phone out first, and I called my mom and told her not to come downstairs. To say, hey, don't come down here. Something bad is really going on out here. You shouldn't come outside. And then I started recording. And then he starts to record the interaction, and he later testifies and tells prosecutors that after he got home that night, he decided to delete the video. And the reason why was because he says that he didn't want police, he didn't want anybody to come after him and ask him about that video evidence. Um, Later on that night, um, I deleted it because when they picked George up off of the ground, the ambulance went straight on 38th. And if you live in South Minneapolis, the easiest way to get to the hospital would have been straight on Chicago. So that to me kind of made it like clear that he was no longer with us. So you thought he had died? Correct. Not quite sure why that would, you know, Make you delete the video. Oh, I just didn't want to have to show it to anyone. I'd be questioning it. And what that told me was that in a lot of communities of color, police are not thought of as agents of good. They're often thought of as, you know, occupying forces in some cases. Forces that will come and intimidate you if they think you are going to speak out against some of the bad actors. So he was doing that out of some self-preservation. And that's the moment that really struck me. The third moment of the trial you highlight is this back and forth between Donald Williams, who witnessed Floyd's killing, and defense attorney Eric Nelson over anger. You were there and interacting with Officer Tao and Officer Chauvin, you grew more and more upset. Would you agree with that? Correct. You grew angry, right? Um, I grew control and professionalism. Okay. Williams is a black man, and when he's being questioned by Eric Nelson, he multiple times refuses to be referred to as angry. I'm curious, what do you make of this moment, of of this exchange? It was a display of jousting, a verbal jousting on on the stand. And for Donald Williams, he knew what Eric Nelson, he knew exactly what he was trying to get uh, Williams to say and to say, yes, yes, that that made me angry that I saw this officer kneeling on top of this 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 man who's handcuffed, laying prone, face down in the middle of the street. In that statement, you said, like, I really wanted to beat the shit out of the police officers. Mm-hmm. You said that. Yeah, I did. That's what I felt. You were angry. No, you can't paint me out as angry. I was, I was in a position where I had to be controlled, of controlled professionalism. I wasn't angry because I stayed no, out But because he knew that these tropes about angry black men are, are used to justify fear, particularly of black people by, by white folks, he's like, no, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going there because like, it was the officer who was the one in the wrong. And I was yelling at him, Donald Williams says, 
to get off of Floyd and administer some aid. And this is someone who was a, a key witness for the prosecution because he just so happens to be a mixed martial arts fighter. Hmm. So he knows what different submission holds are. He actually called what Chauvin was applying to George Floyd as a blood choke. Hmm. It's interesting going through this series of moments with you throughout the trial and seeing the way that race is front and center in them. There's also the fact that the defense has tried to use drug use by Floyd as as part of its argument, which the prosecution has said is totally irrelevant given Chauvin's use of force. And also some of the key moments that have come up in just the past couple days in the courtroom with Minneapolis Police Chief Arredondo testifying that Chauvin violated policy. To continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, that that in no way, shape or form is anything that is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. A Minneapolis police lieutenant who trains officers in the use of force also said the restraint Chauvin used isn't taught by police, wasn't a proper neck restraint. I'm curious how you think all of this is going to weigh into the final decision that jurors make. And also, what you think we should know about the jury, the people who are going to be examining these moments and deciding whether Chauvin should be convicted ultimately? Well, the, the jury selection was, was really important. Um, it's a, a diverse jury. Um, it's actually more diverse than the city of Minneapolis, having more people of color and more people who uh, identify as, as mixed race on that jury. So that's, that's why I was very curious, uh, going back to our previous point about why Eric Nelson was going after these tropes about anger and about you know superhuman black men. But what you have to understand, too, is... His job is to obviously get Derek Chauvin, former officer Derek Chauvin, acquitted and not sentenced. So he is hoping to find perhaps just one jury, one juror that will go against the other jurors and say like, hey, I I, I think that Derek Chauvin was, was justified in this action. And therefore, the trial can end with a hanged jury, with a hung jury. But it's just very difficult to get a conviction of, uh, of police officers. And um, I think there's a large section of Americans, particularly people of color, who are just really bracing themselves for this officer to be acquitted just because we've seen it time and time and time again. But like I said, every jury is different. Um, and we'll see with this Minneapolis jury what verdict they render uh, in a couple of weeks. Bracton Booker, thanks so much for talking with me. Yes, thank you for having me. Also, today, the State Department says it is not considering a joint boycott of the 2022 Beijing Olympics. The department clarified its position Tuesday night after an earlier statement from a spokesperson suggesting the U.S. was consulting with allies about a joint boycott amid growing calls to back out of the event due to human rights violations in China. A State Department official said in a statement, quote, Our position on the 2022 Olympics has not changed. We have not discussed and are not discussing any joint boycott with allies and partners. And California is planning to fully reopen its economy by June 15th. As long as vaccinations remain widely available and hospitalizations continue to be stable, 
Governor Gavin Newsom and state health officials announced the move on Monday. They say the state's mask mandate will continue to stay in place, and no date for lifting that order has been announced. Subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts. And to keep following Bracton Booker's coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial, be sure to sign up for the Recast newsletter at politico.com slash newsletters. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.